Everyone, this is Cindy Finn. I want to welcome you back to another episode of Poop Beat. As always, in this segment, we'll continue to challenge you to solve dynastically difficult real-world cases. Let me introduce you to my partner, Zhang. Hi, everyone. John Huang here. So, Cindy, this week we will be tackling one of your cases from a while back, right? And as always, we'll be dissecting the thought process of an experienced clinician whom we invited to try and solve this case along with you. Here to walk us through this case is Dr. Shreya Trivedi. Many of you already know Dr. Trivedi as one of the writers, producers, and hosts of the Five Pearls podcast, alongside Dr. Marty Fried. She is also one of the creators of the Core I Am collaboration. We are very glad to have her here. Aw, thank you guys. Okay, so this is a 54-year-old male who's presenting with three days of diarrhea. So about a week ago before his hospitalization, he traveled to North Carolina and Pennsylvania to visit some of his friends for the weekend. After returning, he developed some abdominal discomfort and then about a day later started to have diarrhea, which he describes as non-bloody and voluminous. Couldn't really quantify it, just said, quote unquote, many episodes. He tried drinking gallons of Gatorade to stay hydrated, but couldn't tolerate any food which prompted him to come to the ER. He describes associated subjective fevers, malaise, weakness, shakiness, and a decrease in his urine output. In terms of history, he says he's been diagnosed with hypertension, hyperlipidemia, but is otherwise healthy. He underwent an inguinal hernia repair many years ago. Can't remember the name of his medications. He says he hasn't been hospitalized or taken any recent antibiotics. And then on his recent trip, he doesn't remember interactions with nature that much or any wildlife. He didn't eat anything unusual or funny tasting. And to his knowledge, none of his friends he visited were sick. He is a former smoker and has one standard alcoholic drink once daily. He works as a teacher He doesn't know of any medical problems in his siblings or parents, but with the caveat that he doesn't keep in routine contact with his family. So that was the extent of the history available to this patient's admitting physicians. What would you have said and done at this point? Take a moment to think through the case, and we'll compare notes after the break. Stay with us. Welcome back to Core IM's Hoofbeats. So we just heard about a middle-aged man presenting with acute diarrhea. We sat down with Dr. Verity Shea, a hospitalist at Bellevue. Here are some of her reactions to the information you just heard. And no, she was not previously familiar with this case. So certainly, obviously, diarrhea is something that we see more commonly and we probably should think about that more and break that down more. And I think sometimes with some of these kind of more common complaints that don't, and obviously doing this exercise in this way made me kind of force me to think about of how I approach this complaint that I see all the time that maybe has become so automatic that I don't even necessarily like sort of explicitly think about it before. But it's just as important for common complaint like diarrhea to do that same process. Immediately, she takes caution with the chief complaint when she sees this diarrhea. When a presenting symptom is something as common as diarrhea, 
Most people think, "Oh, I had the same patient forty-two times this month already. I know how to manage this." So they reflexively relax, trust their intuition more, and rely on their lazy, trusting, fast-thinking processor to jump to the most obvious conclusions. This phenomenon is called cognitive ease. The impression of familiarity creates a false illusion of ease. Conversely, when we see a rare complaint, the cognitive strain tends to mobilize the vigilant, analytic, slow-thinking system, and we in turn make less mistakes. Cindy, I just want to say, as a junior attending, I still suffer from just out of residency paranoia. So this idea of feeling at ease when trying to diagnose a patient. That seems almost comical to me, but nevertheless, point taken. There is at least some data which you showed me to suggest this tendency, cognitive ease, is real and consequential. So studies that have investigated cases in which diagnostic errors were committed have typically implicated the most common complaints: cough, abdominal pain, shortness of breath, chest pain. Now, some of this is simple probability. More patients present with those symptoms to begin with. But these are also symptoms with broad differentials, very large diagnostic spaces where it's easy for an unsuspecting clinician to get lost. That being said, though, do you know that every year about 50 million episodes of acute diarrhea take place in the U.S. adults, resulting in more than 120,000 hospital admissions every year? If we slow down and do a schematic recount of all the differential diagnoses of diarrhea every time we see a patient with it. Would never be able to get out of the hospital. I did not know that, but、uh, handy excuse. So the challenge here, I think, is for each of us to be aware of those clinical problems we have become habituated to solving non-analytically, and then to recognize the situations、uh, that do require use of our analytic muscles. Maybe cases in which some of the data doesn't fit, or where the reliability of the story might be in question. Now, in this case, the academic nature of our exercise is probably all the cues Dr. Shea needed to sit up in her chair and pay attention. But I think it's still informative to watch how she simultaneously slices through this very common problem of diarrhea with fast pattern recognition, while at the same time habitually guarding herself against premature closure. She employs the right amount of slow thinking to examine every piece of data that stands out. It's the perfect balance of fast and slow processes. A 54-year-old male with some cardiovascular risk factors coming in with acute onset voluminous non-bloody diarrhea associated with some constitutional systemic symptoms and abdominal pain. So she starts off with a good solid problem representation. For those of you who did not have a one-liner from over the break, was it an intentional choice on your part not to form one? For those of you who formulated one. How does hers compare to yours? Would you have included his cardiovascular risk factors? Is there any other data that you would have included in yours, such as his domestic travel history? First thing you think about when someone who has no prior history of any abdominal complaints or diarrheal illnesses is infection, but especially in a 54-year-old male, and why、I、put cardiovascular risk factors in there? You always have to think about ischemic colitis and. Worst case scenario type things, and certainly this gentleman has risk factors for either being a vascular path, or he's 54. He might have AFib that he doesn't know about and thrown off a clot. Although his story is not fitting the illness script for ischemic colitis, but something always to think about, and certainly a non-infectious inflammatory condition. And you always, of course, always have to think about Crohn's and 
you see and certainly can be potentially a bimodal distribution of onset, but usually wouldn't be presenting with such an acute story. But to kind of just take that step back before I dive into the infectious differential. You know, I really love her use of catchphrases like "Let's take a step back" or "What's the worst case scenario?" as mental reminders to explore a broader differential. When the temptation for most people is to immediately start exploring the infectious causes, part of the residency training for me, at least, was drilling these phrases into a permanent fixture in my thought process. So taking routine diagnostic timeouts becomes a habit. And you know, I noticed how she isn't satisfied attacking a problem as broad as diarrhea from just one angle. After all, what is the worst case scenario? It's a heuristic. It's legitimate but limited. Experienced clinicians they probe from different angles, not just what's most disastrous, but also what's most probable, what's most similar, what's pathophysiologically the most likely explanation for the patient's symptoms. The approach, I think, particularly the voluminous and the non-bloody piece, really helps sort of break down the approach to acute diarrhea. Thinking is it small bowel or large bowel with the voluminous component, and this patient's descriptor sounds like more、um, small bowel with the amount that he's having. And then certainly, if it's bloody or not, thinks you know makes you think about is is this an invasive pathogen or not? And if it's bloody, that. Certainly brings you down a different type of pathway, and things makes you think about other certain infectious agents and Shigella and Salmonella and things that might be more invasive type. And so it sounds like that's not the case in this gentleman. We have no reason to think he's immunocompromised, which certainly then would open up a whole other doorway of、uh, possibilities on the differential. Although you know we haven't heard about his you know sexual history and, and other risk factors of why this gentleman might be HIV positive. You start thinking about all the other sorts of different pathogens and opportunistic organisms, and then certainly, obviously, common things being common, like this gentleman just could have like a norovirus, right? Certainly, might actually be one of the most likely things in him, and certainly fits the illness group for how norovirus presents. And he has no obvious, again, reason to have C. diff, or doesn't sound like there's been any sort of food toxin mediated. Maybe he is. Going on, thinking about what data doesn't fit, like going on a little bit long, but maybe he's at the resolving, you know, tail end of it. You know, I thought it was interesting how travel history isn't central to her thought process. If you noticed, it didn't even make it into her problem representation. When we asked about this, Dr. Shea said this was deliberate, as intuitive as it is to try to connect his travel to his illness. She pointed out that. His travel was limited to urban North Carolina and Pennsylvania, with no unusual activities or exposures. So, in as much as the history can be trusted, it doesn't necessarily broaden the differential. I think that's a bold move, but recognizing and removing this distraction is an important step.、Uh, certainly, one in which I stumbled. Completely agree with you. For me, it's even more surprising that while she did not include the travel history in her problem representation. The constitutional systemic symptoms made the cut. In fact, during our discussion, she entertained the possibility that maybe his illness was not primarily a gastrointestinal process. Maybe there's a broader systemic disorder where the diarrhea is merely a manifestation of something bigger. You know, that's an important check, Cindy, and I feel this is still something I I struggle with. I feel like I've been implicitly taught. 
to deliberately anchor my thought process on the chief complaint. I mean, such is its importance that many times during conferences, you see, you know, you pause after that first sentence to start building your differential. And, you know, this plays into the natural human tendency, I think, to pay closer attention to the first data that were provided. So this approach, I think, works well in academic conferences. And yet in real life, this approach often fails. Because the chief complaint, remember, is the symptom that bothers the patient the most, not the symptom that is most central to the pathophysiology of the case. Right. In taking it even broader, it's always prudent to take into account the concept of illness behavior, how patients perceive their symptoms, how and what they choose to report, what resources they decide to utilize, and when they decide to come to you to seek care, and so forth. Now I do recall this lesson we also learned from Dr. Jingjingian from the first Hoofbeat episode. Listen to your patients, but don't trust them to do your work for you. Now I'm vividly remembering a patient I had a few years back whose chief complaints were fever and profuse diarrhea. All his stool tests came back negative, but he turned out to have strep A bacteremia, and the diarrhea resolves with treatment. So if you do a bit of Googling, you come across a laundry list of non-GI pathogens that are reported to cause diarrhea at varying frequencies, primary HIV infection, septicemia, pneumococcal or meningococcal infection, malaria, dengue, legionellosis, and we don't even have time to get into the non-infectious conditions that can do this. Well, I do want to stress the point that the teaching point is not to incorporate diarrhea without other symptoms into the illness scripts for any of these disorders above. Rather, we just wanted to point out that diarrhea can be an atypical presentation for systemic illnesses. It's very rare, but it can happen. So what you're trying to tell us here, Cindy Wright, is this case is not norovirus. (laughs) We will see. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals right to your door ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. So let's have Dr. Trevedi walk us through the objective data that was available to this patient's admitting physicians. Okay, so in terms of vitals, his temperature was 100.1 Fahrenheit, a pulse of 111, blood pressure of 80 over 45, a respiratory rate of 20 breaths per minute, satting 100% on room air. On exam, he was a well-developed middle-aged male who appeared fatigued, but was alert and oriented, had dry mucous membranes. His cardiac exam was significant for tachycardia without murmurs. He was slightly tachypnic, but was cleared auscultation bilaterally. His abdomen was soft, 
but sensitive to palpation throughout and more pain significantly in the epigastrium and left lower quadrant. He had no CVA tenderness. The rest of his exam was unremarkable. On labs, he had a leukocytosis of 18, hemoglobin of 13, and platelet of 120. His basic metabolic revealed hyponatremia to 116, a potassium of 4, chloride of 86, a bicarb of 6, BUN over creatinine, 32 over 5.9, and a glucose of 219. He didn't have any baseline labs to compare this to. His initial blood gas showed a lactate of 4. The urine analysis was turbid urine, moderate blood protein, negative for nitrite or leukesterase, 5 RBCs, and 10 highline casts. His stool GI pathogen was negative. And then his chest x-ray revealed minimal bibasilar atelectasis and his ECG showed sinus tachycardia. When we come back, we will hear from Dr. Shea. This week, we are trying to solve a case of a middle-aged gentleman with acute diarrhea. So Dr. Shea heard this case in two parts, history first and objective data second, just like you did. Let's hear from her. And then I think what really helped then sort of frame how I think about this case is getting to more actual kind of the laboratory data. You know, on exam, I think abdominal pain certainly sometimes can be a nonspecific thing and localizing in. And so I think I kind of more sort of broke it down actually when getting to the, there were some interesting pieces of data particularly for him, is that, again, this seems like this is a multi-organ system disease and potentially a infectious process with this leukocytosis of 18. And, you know, his hematologic system is involved mostly in his thrombocytopenia, but does not have an anemia. And he's pretty profound hyponatremia and acute renal failure and, and acidosis without a hyperkalemia. And then the, also the hyperglycemia. I think that's what then helped me kind of really the hyperglycemia of like, uh, why does this guy also now have hyperglycemia? And almost a little bit more specific kind of data point that helped me kind of pivot how I'm thinking about this case. I mean, certainly maybe he's just never got diagnosed with his diabetes and he's a 50-year-old guy and, you know, has chronic diseases, but I'm like, probably not. And so kind of led me to think of now, does he have some reason why his pancreas is not working, you know, all of a sudden, and then kind of to delve down to there. And that's almost kind of then what I started to kind of create my differential around more of what could be giving this guy now hyperglycemia as a cause of pancreatic (laughs) dysfunction. And so then that kind of fits in potentially with some of the physical exam findings of maybe that's more consistent with like an acute pancreatitis and he's got epigastric pain. So Dr. Shea's take on this case is that he has acute pancreatitis resulting in exocrine pancreatic dysfunction, causing diarrhea. Interesting. You know, I always learn to think of the algorithm of diarrhea being small versus large bowel, acute versus non-acute, bloody versus non-bloody, and so on and so forth. Pancreatic insufficiency for me is usually grouped under chronic, so I would never have reached the conclusion going down the algorithm for this patient. I guess the disadvantage of grouping etiologies or patients into buckets is that I can forget all chronic symptoms can start acutely at some point. Listen, learn for me. No, that was my experience too. Um, Pancreatitis, not in my algorithm for acute diarrhea. It's like it doesn't exist to my brain. 
And I think this is sobering. I mean, of course I know algorithms can't replace clinical judgment. That is always the disclaimer you read, right? But I learn my algorithms thinking they'll at least enable my thinking, strengthen my memory and my reasoning. And now to turn around and realize that they've actually blinded me instead. I mean, I don't want to trash algorithms, but I think we've come a pretty long way from the 60s and 70s. Cindy, you were telling me this is an era in which computer programming was becoming increasingly influential. And there was a great sense of optimism at that time. The use of algorithms would help eliminate human diagnostic errors. Now here we are, decades later in the gritty dystopian future, and finding out it is not the ultimate answer. Surprise! We simply cannot, I think, let algorithms become crutches. Same goes with all the checklists and tables. Those are just so easily accessible at our fingertips nowadays. I'm still in awe by how she used the hyperglycemia as the pivot point to crack the case. Again, talk about differentiating noise versus signal, right? Such a beautiful example of fast-thinking heuristics. With pattern recognition and fast association, she was able to identify hyperglycemia as an outlier, and then from there conclude that there must be a disorder in the pancreas. Right. I mean, obviously the take-home point here is not that we should be looking to make diagnoses based on every single high glucose level that we see. I think rather we want to recognize the clinical context that transforms this ordinarily nonspecific abnormality suddenly into something meaningful. And this is a reason we practice problem representation in our illness scripts, right? It's to hope that with time and experience, this recognition of when an abnormality is signal versus when it's noise becomes automatic. I do want to caution that fast-thinking process is tricky. It's by definition automatic, involuntary, and difficult to control. Let's say, for example, the data point of hyperglycemia was a pivot point for Dr. Shea, and she immediately reached the conclusion of pancreatic insufficiency. But another experienced physician may notice the same hyperglycemia as an outlier but combine it with the recent travel history and acute diarrheal illness and reach the conclusion of vibrio infection in a patient with previously undiagnosed hemochromatosis. To clarify, hemochromatosis is a disease entity that is associated with diabetes, and patients are often immunosuppressed and susceptible to vibrio vulnificus. The targeted follow-up question for this patient would then become, during his travel to North Carolina if he had any exposure at seaprotons or ingested any raw oysters that was not import- reported. So, you know, it occurred to me, fast thinking is, is dazzling, and I think it makes these sorts of sage-on-a-stage case discussions, as entertaining as they are, treacherous to learn from. It's very tempting to focus on a discussant's flash of insight, you know, this patient has pancreatitis. And in doing so, we risk missing all the slow analytic reasoning by which our discussant maneuvers herself into a position to make that diagnosis. Exactly. And remember, fast thinking and pattern recognition does make us more vulnerable to cognitive biases, which is why it has such a bad rap. One of such biases is search satisfaction. Now that we reach the conclusion that this patient has pancreatitis and pancreatic insufficiency, the next question we need to remember is, why does he have pancreatitis in the first place? Common things being common, his alcohol use history, but that does not explain everything else that's going on. So we would have to have that and something else going on. 
gallstone disease, of course, you know, but again, that does not explain everything else we're seeing here on this multi-organ system disease. The lead of my differential is that there is an infectious organism that's driving this. And looking that up, one on the list is salmonella, but we get a stool studies that are negative. And then ultimately, leptospirosis can be a cause of acute pancreatitis. And it can sort of almost as like a little bit of a mimicker leptospirosis and can really present as a multi-organ system disease that is manifesting of all the organ systems that this patient has, including an AKI. And also, this is something that I did not know but learned. These patients tend to not have a hyperkalemia because of effect on the, I'm forgetting, I think it was like which of the um, channels, I think in the distal lupapenle, the sodium potassium, which is something that I learned because I think that was also an interesting data piece that had such bad AKI, such profound acidosis, but a relatively normal potassium, I think was a striking thing in his story a little bit. And these patients also can get pretty profound hyponatremia as well. Always then going back to what data doesn't fit, where did he contract it? I don't think there's a particular higher prevalence in the areas that he's been, and I don't know where he visited when he was in North Carolina and, and Pennsylvania of why he would have contracted it. Ultimately, with pancreatitis, just kind of thinking back again, broader approach to pancreatitis, and you know, of course, medication history. There is definitely some. I want to say thiazides, or, or I'm forgetting now, honestly, which of which of the blood pressure medications are associated with pancreatitis. So with hyponatremia and acute pancreatitis would be a way to potentially connect those two things. He's got AKI because he's profoundly, you know, again, hypovolemic, both from a thiazide and from his volume losses. And in that case, you know, you can't sort of invoke sepsis, though. The other thing is profound hypertriglyceridemia is the other thing that is certainly in the differential for severe pancreatitis, which then you can get a pseudo-hyponatremia as well. And again, potentially all the rest of the, the findings can be just from sepsis in the setting of pancreatitis. So from the hyponatremia, the AKI without hyperkalemia, she proposes several possible causes for this patient's pancreatitis. Leptospirosis, thiazide use, and hypertriglyceridemia. All are very plausible diagnoses worth investigation in this gentleman. But I do want to call your attention to how, after she makes each proposition, she habitually takes a mini time out to look at both data to confirm and disprove each. So, Cindy, should we resolve the case? You actually took care of this patient, right? What happened to him? So this patient was found to have severe necrotic pancreatitis with markedly elevated triglyceride in the several thousands. He temporarily required hemodialysis and insulin drip, but ultimately his overall status and renal function improved with supportive care for pancreatitis and as well as controlling his triglyceride level. He was also diagnosed with pancreatic exocrine insufficiency with low stool elastase and his diarrhea improved with pancreatolipase supplementation. With further collaterals, it was revealed later that his home blood pressure medication was not a thiazide, but losartan instead. He was imbibing slightly more alcohol on the trip when he visited his friends, and he has a sister who also suffered from acute pancreatitis at a young age, presumably from familiar hypertriglyceridemia. Let me just make sure I got this straight. Familial hypertriglyceridemia causing acute pancreatitis, perhaps exacerbated by some drinking, resulting in pancreatic insufficiency and diarrhea. That's right. Wow. That doesn't seem complicated enough. Are you sure he didn't also have leptospirosis? 
Well, he never had any animal contact on the trip, so leptospirosis was never on our differential, and serologies were never sent. So I guess we will never know. So Chang, maybe we should summarize what we touched on working through this case and hearing from Doctor Shea. So we discussed the concepts of cognitive ease versus cognitive strain. And the paradox of how we might be at greatest risk for erring when facing the "quote unquote" easiest or most familiar of clinical problems. We talked about broadening our scope when we face a symptom or chief complaint. It can be a local problem limited to the organ system, or it could be a, one of the signs reflecting a more global process. We saw how our discussant swiftly homed in on this patient's pancreatic dysfunction using pattern recognition, a type of fast thinking process. Yet at the same time, using diagnostic timeout habitually to prevent biases that come along with the fast thinking system. We also talked about the use of algorithms, tables and checklists, and how we should use them as tools instead of letting them dominate our diagnostic reasoning. And finally, Dr. Shea also walked us through some rare causes of diarrhea and pancreatitis. And I think that should do it for this week. We want to thank Drs. Shreya Trivedi, Verity Shea, and Michael Janjigian for weighing in on this episode. Special thanks too to our editor for this episode, Richard Chen, along with Amy O, David Ree, and Harit Shah, as well as Stephen Liu and Marty Freed over at our sister segments at Core IM. Have any comments about this case, discussion, or commentary? We would love to hear your thoughts on this week's episode or ideas for future episodes. Send us an email at coreimpodcast@gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Core IM Podcast. Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of NYU or other affiliated institutions, nor should they be construed as medical advice. Reason forward responsibly. Thanks for joining us with Core IM. I'm John Huang, and I'm Cindy Fain. Thank you again, and see you next time. At Parker, our purpose is simple: we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit Parker.com/purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Swimsuit check. Sunscreen check. Phone charger check. Don't forget to pack the five-hour energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get twenty percent off when you use code Five HE Travel at FiveHourEnergy.com. Expires April thirtieth. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit FiveHourEnergy.com and use code Five HE Travel to save twenty percent.